Passage, la nouvelle série de podcasts de l'Institut français. Un échange libre et sans modérateur entre une personnalité des mondes francophones et une personnalité néerlandaise sur des thèmes qui leur sont chers. Last week, I uh, listened to a radio program by my friend uh, to stream on Tent House in uh, Oslo. And um, it's been a while that I listened to live radio. And I thought to myself, how soothing, how relaxing it is to have these audio conversations that allow you to express yourself without being conscious of the visual uh, aspect, with of which, of course, has dominated our lives uh, in the last 10 years because of television, social media, and all of this uh, photography, uh, the rise of photography. Uh, And in that sense, I, when I received this invitation, I thought, wow, how so soon that I wished for a radio uh, conversation and then I get a podcast uh, information. And so because of this, I'm very pleased to be here. I'm Bukola Oyebade, the editor uh, of the TSA Art Magazine, founded in Nigeria and focused on contemporary uh, arts from Africa and its diaspora. And I'm pleased to be speaking with you also, Marie-Cécile. Well, I'm very happy to, to meet you here in Amsterdam, which is, uh, which is funny when we think that we are neighbors. <laughs> we live almost in the same city, <laughs> between Lagos and Cotonou. Uh, yeah, my name is Marie-Cécile Zinsu, and I'm, uh, I created uh, a contemporary art foundation in 2005, uh, the Zinsu Foundation in, uh, in Cotonou. And we opened the Wida Museum of Contemporary Art in uh, 2013. Yeah. I think we know where we want to start our conversation, right? <laughs> we are neighbors, and it's incredible that I just discovered this morning how you can come from we there or from Lagos on one way, and we will be in each other's um, cities. Do you want to share this magic with me in the way that everyone can picture it? Because I cannot explain it the way you've explained it. And so... Well, it's very special because um, when it's funny to have this conversation here in Europe, uh, <laughs> because in Europe people have an idea of uh, Africa, this gigantic country uh, in the <laughs> south, and um, people don't realize uh, where we live and what's happening on the continent. And it's probably one of the most interesting um, phase of history. Some people uh, have regrets not to have lived Renaissance in Florence or, and I'm really happy to live uh, our time in Cotonou because I feel I'm in the middle of the world. And we spoke about it this morning because why do I feel I am in the middle of the world? Because actually I'm in the middle of the biggest city of the world which nobody sees because it's a city that doesn't exist. And that is the particularity. It's like people don't look. People don't look at what is in front of their eyes. You live in Lagos. If you want to go to my museum, for example, in Wida, you go outside your house, you turn on your right, and you just ride and ride and ride and you arrive in my museum. And if I want to go to the Palais de Lomé, uh, to the museum in Togo, I go on my right and I ride and ride and ride and ride, ride in a way and we actually almost never leave the city. And we are like, well, there is this road from Lagos to Abidjan where we are going to be, we're around, I think, 55 millions today maybe, we'll be 100 millions um, in a few years. Like my, my children, I'm not sure my children will be in university when we'll be 100 million uh, around that street. And this main street uh, is your street and is my street actually. 
And so, yeah, we live in a, we are neighbors of a city that don't exist, but it's probably the biggest city in the world. But it's also a beautiful thing in that these streets can take you on to Accra, as we saw on the map. It can take you on to uh, the Cape Coast and it can take you to Abidjan. It's really a very networked uh, continent. I mean, it fits that picture of one continent of homogeneous uh, people and cultures and all of that external gaze. But it's also that it's a highly networked uh, continent when you think of cities on the coastline. And in that sense, it makes it beautiful, magical, and to want to for me to want to explore uh, these places. And uh, I think we should still explore the idea of living in African cities, especially along the coastlines, and share how our experiences have shaped who we are. For example, you arrived in um, Cotonou 20 years ago. You have gone on to be one of the most important figures in Bini and also on the African continent in relations to art and culture. And um, you founded a beautiful uh, foundation that exposes young people to art, which can be one of the most important things you can give in terms of education, cultural education, for people to be aware of who they are, to be aware of their artistic productions or cultural heritage. And you don't do this based on, of course, traditional and classic heritage. You do this based on what is happening today in front of their eyes, or at least be exposed to it and be aware of who they are and how that is shaped today. You want to share more about this? Uh, it's funny because uh, 17 years after having started, people have maybe, how did you have the idea and whatever. Like, I was just working uh, at school in Benin uh, with children, and I just wanted them to have um, the weapons to, to go in the world and become themselves. And... I was I, I was born in France for political reasons in Benin because my family uh, had been expelled of Benin by uh, by the communists at that time in the 70s and uh, we were not allowed to go back to the country. So I, I lived in Paris. So living in Paris means being confronted to the museum, to exhibitions, to theater, to music, to everything. And just walking in the street is uh, giving is taking a lesson of architecture, for example. And so when I saw those kids that were me. 15 years before um my question was why can why don't they have access to books why don't they have access to museums why don't they have access to all those things that will make them uh, stronger to to understand the world because we're in a globalized world we were already there in uh, 2005 how do you give those kids the strength to know who they are and uh, and and invent their future and that's the only answer that came to me was the museum uh, where do you feel the time you live in? Where do you, where can you step back from your life and look at what's happening around you? It's the museum. The artists give you keys. They don't. They, they're not like schools. They don't give you the line you have to follow, but they open uh, roads everywhere. And I feel after after seventeen years and seeing younger, we had young children that were yesterday in Amsterdam in the exhibition of the our collection in the Cobra. They have seen all our exhibitions. They've come with the schools and they came alone. They came with their friends and they now they're they see them on Instagram. They're they've been there forever and it's totally natural for them. When when I started in two thousand five, there was not this tool to to be able to invent the future and yeah so it was just uh how do you how do you how do you let people invent their future how do you work how can they know where they come from uh we come from 
countries that have been independent for a few years, uh, colonization has erased our history. Uh, how do we know who we are in that situation? And how can we find um, tools to build ourselves? And if you don't know who you are, you can't know where you're going. Right, right. The museum might be answering that. Yeah. And I think that's what you do also in your in your publications and you document what we are living right now. Right, yes. Actually, before I respond to that, I just want to share that before this conversation, you shared the, uh, the experience that you had meeting a 17 uh, young guy who used to be a part of, always visited exhibitions that were held by the museum for several years and somehow he grew up with exposure to this contemporary art. For me, that was a beautiful testimony to the work that you do and in the sense that this guy, this young chap was not just exposed to art from, let's say, 100 years ago, the traditional art that we have all, we were all exposed to somehow growing up in books and by ways of traveling to our villages, but he was exposed to art that has been produced in the last 20 to 30 years. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful testimony to you. And for me, my uh, the origin of the TSA publication also had similar uh, uh, mission in mind. How can you expose the world of the Lagos art scene to the young people. There were lots of people who did not have access to what was going on. Often you would come across this, across it in the newspapers or in lifestyle magazines, but they didn't have ideas or information on where to go, how to be part of that scene. And I was working in the gallery at a time in uh, 2013, 2014, and it struck me that I could create a blog where people can have access to information and also in a very accessible way and accessible language. And the medium became, uh, it became apparent to me that the medium had to be digital because I mean, how many young people can afford to buy a newspaper and also they don't find it as a primary, uh, primary place for accessing information. So we set up with a blog and the blog sort of grew out of this idea of uh, making information accessible, what's happening, who and who is behind what and um, bring contemporary productions closer to a younger uh, audience. And from there, it, it became a magazine in 2018. And since then, we grew to have contributors from different parts of the continent, to the diaspora in Europe, and uh, also to um, the US. And somehow, unlike you, this work took me outside of the continent, as opposed to taking, as, as opposed to you, where you returned from Paris to the continent to work and to ground yourself. I somehow find myself on the other side in, 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 uh, in Amsterdam. And that's how I arrived here, of course, by way of other um, uh, associations and experiences in my life here. Yeah. But it's so beautiful to share this common interest and this common mission. And it's also so important to be able to document ourselves uh, what's happening to us. Um, this is from, uh, we did an experience in uh, 2006 um, at a time where repatriation, all those subjects didn't exist uh, in people's mind. But at that time, there was a French president who um, said we're going to open a new museum, the Museum of the Quai Branly. And he said, okay, it's called where the culture dialogue 
So he said, actually, to have a dialogue, you need, you must be two. You can't dialogue yeah. on yourself uh, <laughs> with yourself. It's not possible. So he said, okay, let's send to the African continent the African collections. So everyone said, no way. There's no way we send them in Africa. It's going to be stolen. It's going to disappear. So he said, okay, you can, um, you can uh, all, uh, we can fire you all and we'll find a team that wants to dialogue. <laughs> so they said, okay, we can send to Benin. And I presented uh, an exhibition of the French National collection of the Beninese arts, the Daomian art, um, which was a real first. It was, uh, how do you, France was lending us our history, which is a thing, it's another subject and probably not today's <laughs> today. subject, but it's, a, it's an interesting subject. It's, uh, and um, so my question was, I never did a historical uh, exhibition. I work with contemporary artists. When I need to know something about Romuald Azoumé, I ask Romuald Azoumé and I work with him. And I, I, I never really documented uh, ancient art and it was not my specialty. So I decided to find uh, documents and all I could find uh, on the colonization peri period was uh, the French archives. And so we started collecting them and finding newspaper books, everything. All our history is depending on foreign sources. Yeah. And it's the same in Nigeria, you know. If yes. you want to look for something in the history of Nigeria in the early uh, 19th century, you have to go to the British Museum or the British Library. Yes, of course, because we have found some archives in Nigeria and all, all other countries in Italy, in France, in England, in Germany, a lot of things. But we have absolutely, we can't find sources from us. And that's. So this, weirdly enough, this exhibition about ancient art made us so um, aware aware, and so specific that we decided to create, create this uh, edition called uh, Archive the Present. Uh, how do we document what we are living now to give a testimony for people? It's, a, it's kind of a, a work we do for the people in 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. Uh, how do we give a testimony from where we sit? No. And not from people looking at us. So that is why TSA is so important. And that's, it's, um, and it's this common point, like we feel it's now we have to give our version of the, uh, of the history. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Uh, sometimes I underestimate the work that we do with TSA, but sometimes when I take a step back <laughs> and I look at the work, I'm thinking, okay, this is a document for the future. In fact, I um, often consoled myself when there would be very little resources to do the work as I would love for us to do in terms of commissioning and depth of work that we can document, that I would say build slowly because you are not building for today. You are creating a resource for tomorrow. And that shaped how I, I have perceived my work up until that moment. I think it was also the exposure after... I did some courses. I, I, I did a curatorial study in um, Venice. I was exposed to looking at archives in a different way and all of that because we were looking at the history of the Venice Biennale. We looked at the history of the Documenta and all of these different uh, monumental projects that have come out of Europe. And I thought the starting point was not necessarily to make history. They were doing it for that moment, but it became a project of history somehow and also a project of the future. And that shaped kind of because some of the documents that we uh, sort of um, studied were posters of exhibitions of, of also uh, 
the, the, the Salon de Paris and all of those, this world international exhibitions. And often I noticed the starting point where the posters of this project and TS started by sharing news of what's is happening or what was happening in Lagos and often they are posters and banners and these uh, very uh, informational uh, materials that announces something and I've in that sense because at some point they said oh TS didn't have debt as a block then because of course people will push back against you and say what you are doing does not have debt you only announce events and exhibitions but after that story in Venice I said well if that's the only thing I do I think I'm contributing something very important to the future of this continent because I then looked into different archives to find what has happened in the 60s, in the 70s, and before then of African art expositions, and there were very limited materials, right? And where they were available, they were in archives in Smithsonian, in ICA in London, and in the British Library, and other places in Europe, and I thought, well, if I can hold on to this kind of resources for people of the continent for the future, then I am contributing very important work. But of course, we have uh, sort of transited that level to doing more work, but I still always remember my, remind myself that this work is not a work for now, it's a work for this future, and it's essential. And I want to also return this gestures to you, because um, I looked on your website and I see how much publications that you have worked on, and especially you shared with us the publication for children, how you try to expose the young od audience who can only read and write, you know, <laughs> to art. <laughs> and I really am fascinated by that. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because my last book uh, is uh, 26 letters, so it's obviously <laughs> it's not so it's not a gigantic work <laughs> of research. And <laughs> it's uh, yeah, my question was um, how do you how do you give images that will stay forever in the children's mind? Because when you're when you're small, you are very open, and it's very funny to see that in our public, 80% of our public in the museum is under 18. Uh, so it's we are confronted to to children and how they how they look at the works, how they understand the works, how they ask about the works, which is which is something adults don't do so easily. And so we've always been focusing very seriously on uh, on young people, and so. I had this memory of, uh, I have those works of art, I couldn't say why they were with me all the time. You have the Eiffel Tower by Kandinsky, mm -hmm. uh, you have some uh, works from uh, Pollock, you have the um, uh, women with the guitar of Braque, and then I realized my mother offered me those Pompidou Center books. Uh, you have one uh, artwork and you can play with it in different mm -hmm. ways, it depends on the, the artist and the books, and I've had that all my childhood. I just bought the copies on eBay for my children, so now they have their Kandinsky collection <laughs> and everything. And I thought those paintings are so important to me because I met them when I was two or three or four, and so these are kind of my references. I always think, uh, I'm not speaking all the time about them, but I always come back to them. And so I decided to do exactly the same, thinking, okay, why don't we do that with uh, the creation from the continent? Why don't we show it to young people? So I did an ABC for my uh, for my two and a half years old son, and um, I wanted to him to understand letters. So I took one letter, one painting, one letter, one sculpture, one letter, one installation, one letter, one one photograph. So we did that with uh, with all the alphabet, and. I, 
I did it for my son and then I did a second uh, book for my uh, daughter who was born just after and people came at home and said oh, okay uh, I'm taking it because I really want to show it to my <laughs> children I'm taking it I'm taking and then finally <laughs> we decided we decided to do an edition uh, for children uh, of the museum because it obviously people are looking for that kind of tool and we've had we were very um, surprised by people who were ordering the books, um, which were not always African people or diaspora people, but people who said, it's so cool that my children can access that when they're small and have it like evidence and for them, it will be with them all, you know, for the li for li a lifelong. So it's very interesting that they get this approach because we didn't get it. So mm -hmm. we don't, we are not confronted to African contemporary creation. So it's so important that you get that at three years old because after it will be with you all your life. Yeah, right. And that's one of our best sellers, which is weird because <laughs> <laughs> 26 letters and finally we <laughs> No, but you'll be surprised that it. maybe most of the people who are buying these books are not necessarily buying it for their children because even adults. Yeah on the continent, I can tell you, are not very well exposed to contemporary art creations. Yeah, because it's also a catalogue of works uh, from, we took them from the collection and asked the artists we were working with if they were okay with it, but actually it's it's a catalogue with various artists and very different type of works, and so you haven't so many books uh, showing contemporary creation. You know, this idea of uh, publication, I know that generally when we think of publication on the continent, we are thinking of artist catalogs and maybe uh, monographs and all of that. But I, I love this idea of creating uh, art publications for children. I remember in the conversation in the recent publication by TSA, where I spoke with the Elena Brundin. Uh, she was uh, one of the uh, pioneers or the starters of the Zeitmoker. And um, one of our pet projects is to educate a young audience. And so far, I think they've been successful because they've worked with uh, foundations. They've worked with uh, like children's organizations. Instead of just focusing on the audience coming to the museum, they take the project to the uh, special centers where children are the focus of these places, especially children from the margins of society who don't easily have the resources to be connected to the cultural world. And I think in that sense, if there can be more of this kind of initiatives on the continent, we will have a very brilliant, sophisticated, uh, innovative uh, group of uh, people in the next three to four or two to three generations in the, on the continent. It's so important to make, uh, to transform the museum as a habit. Children just go to a museum like this. They just, you know, they just, uh, we opened the doors. They came first. The parents didn't come at first. It was the children coming. And it's so important that they come and that uh, after a few months, they say, okay, can you please change the exhibition? We have seen it a hundred times. And it's so important that they feel um, that it's a right. Yeah. And this is not always the case. And it's funny because when we do this, um, our workshop, the uh, petit pinceaux, those small brushes, they come every week, first come, first served. I mean, they arrive like this and we, we do the visit of the exhibition. Then we have, sometimes when we have the chance to have the artist there, he can, or he or she can um, uh, do the workshop or we, we organize uh, workshops function of the works we show. And this works so well. And 
some of our mediators, uh, when we are between two exhibitions, the mediators go to schools and um, offer the schools to do the small brushes, but in the schools while we are doing an accrochage or something mm -hmm. like that. So when we can't uh, receive them. And everybody is asking if we can come to the schools <laughs> and start <laughs> the art workshop, which is quite complex because we have to come with a work, with an original work for the children to be able oh to God. see it, understand mm -hmm. them. Because it's not just like coloring books, it's, uh, it's more than that. So we have to invent new ideas. But it's fun because now children, they, they come and they order us to have their, <laughs> their small brushes. And, but that's really good because it means it's totally natural. Yeah. That guy from yesterday in the exhibition um, is probably 25 or something like that. He has done uh, the small brushes and he has come to the exhibition and he has he has had the posters, the game posters. <laughs> you can uh, you can go back to your place and stick it on the wall. And this guy has finds that totally natural. And he comes to Amsterdam for studies. And what does he do? He goes to the museum. Natural habit. Yeah. It's Nature. a normal. Yeah. It's uh, logical. It's interesting that you talk about this way of uh, redesigning the museum uh, as a living space, as a natural place, part of the community, because I think uh, you also brought up the name Koyoko, what I was trying to remember earlier, that one of the goals of Koyoko at Zeitmoker, and especially since the time of the pandemic, was that she has been championing this redesigning or redefining the museum, not as a place of storage, or as a place of high culture, but as a place that is central to the community. And I think that was one of the ideas that informed making this exhibition, the home is where the art is, where there were collections or arts works from both amateurs and uh, professionals who were living in Cape Town. And I, I, I like this idea of, you know, opening up these institutions, this uh, high culture infrastructure to the common public. And that, that's a beautiful thing because I imagine that if my childhood was filled with this kind of experience that it would have made me into a maybe different person. I'm happy with where I am now because I've had to do it myself. But imagine if I was held from when I was a child and I had this kind of exposure. The earliest exposure were to status in our neighbor's houses. And often because of religion, there was always this sort of, in those houses they have things they are worshipping, you know, this kind of looking down on these objects because of the religious influences that we had in colonial times. But, you know, things have, are slowly uh, changing, and the work that you do, the work that I do, are part of this uh, transition that is um, happening on the continent. And when we talk about the continent, you say, you use the word I as someone from within and part of the continent. I know you have been in this uh, French um, nationality and origin you are as Beninese as the come and you're as French as the come you know and this kind of dual identity this um, multiracial identity is not so something that is often engaged when we look at the continent the continent is looked at as somewhere with homogeneous culture homogeneous identity black by way of skin black by way of sensibilities well maybe African would be the right word. But we're in Europe, so we can use the word black because it speaks to a general understanding of the African identity or the black identity. And I'm thinking in Benin, in Benin or in Widar, in Abome, in Cotonou, these particular cities where you normally uh, live, how are you perceived? I mean, how you are perceived there, of course, 
Maybe you should explain this. I think it's a very complex thing when you look at it from outside, but maybe not so complex when you're in Benin. Yeah, it's, I'm French in Paris. I'm Beninese in Cotonou. And I mean, yeah, that is no, I don't have any problems with that. The only questions I get about my identity are in other people's eye, which is always uh, the question when you are, uh, I don't know how you say, I don't know what's the proper word, mixed or I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, mixed is what people uh, send you back when they look at you. But actually, I'm not mixed. I'm... <laughs> I'm 100% Beninese, I'm 100% French, is, there is no question. Uh, sometimes I'm a little Italian because <laughs> <laughs> it's like this and sometimes uh, I can be other things and uh, I'm probably a bit Togolese too because <laughs> of my family. Which is, uh, it's In Benin, we are all mixed because first Beninese is an invention we've been drawn in 1885 in Berlin, which is quite far from us. We've been put together. Mm -hmm. People from the north with a certain religion, a certain culture, a certain history, with people from the south with a very different religion, very different culture, very different history. People from the center, which have nothing to do with <laughs> all those people from the north and the south. All those people have very different backgrounds and it's like, and we've been put together as Daumians and then as Beninese. So first... Everyone is mixed because your mother is from Porto Novo, your father is from Natitangu. Then you're, you're the product of very different histories. But that makes you who you are. I'm for the, from the north by my mother. It's a real north because my mother is more from the east of France. So obviously it's really north, north from Benin. But it's like I'm from the north from my mother. I know my mother's story. I'm from the south from my father. I know my father's story. And... There is a question of the name. My name is Zinsu, which is the most Beninese name you can find. It's the name you give to the first twin. So every first twin in Benin was called Zinsu. The second was called Sagbo. So I have a name that says where I come from. I have the question also of my children. My children are even more mixed than I am. <laughs> uh, but what are their names? My uh, my son is called Ayodele, and his uh, little sister is called Olabisi. And that's it. And people sometimes say, what is the real name? <laughs> actually, it's Ayodele and Olabisi. It's like, uh, actually, Olabisi has a second name. She's called Ifeyinka too. But it's... Uh, it's Even more complicated. You won't find any Francoise, any, any Elizabeth. Any, no, they're called Ayodele and Olabisi because the question is, where do they come from? And who are they? And they come from multiple places, but their name is... Uh, their name tells them uh, what is their history. And... I found it very important, my husband found it very important too, um, that uh, their name would attach them to their culture. Right. And it's strange because my daughter, to my biggest surprise, is blonde with blue eyes, which is something <laughs> really I never expected. <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, well, my mother was like that, but I couldn't imagine my daughter would be blonde with blue eyes. And she's all like very pale skin and she's called Olabisi Voshezinsu, which is uh, a name more Yoruba, you can't do that. Yeah, very Yoruba. <laughs> and there was this uh, lady in the plane uh, who saw my husband with her in the arms and she said, oh, she's very sweet. How old is she? Three, three weeks. Okay, it's her first trip to Benin. And uh, my husband said something. I said, Olabisi, sleep. And she said, Olabisi, 
You mean she's Yoruba? <laughs> and my husband said, yes, yes, yes. Okay, I care about her during the flight. Good, said I take her no. because she's mine. And I mean, she's blonde with blue eyes, but a Yoruba lady in the plane recognized her directly, took her, and that's it. And she knows where she comes from, and the lady knows where she comes from. And nobody has a question of, a, uh, you know, the question of the color is the question that you look at me, you see me pale, some people will Obligate. look at me. Yeah. It has no no importance. The question is, where do we come from? And I think I answered that question and I know where I'm coming from and I know where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I also share this kind of um, affiliation or connection with where I come from by way of my name. And so I do recognize the importance of how the name can connect you or ground you in where you come from. No matter where I live today, I feel very first and foremost Yoruba. My name is Oluwa Bukola when I say it in full. And this is the identity, the sensibility that I carry with me into the world, regardless of other identities that I take on. And I think that's something that is very important for us as we navigate the world about knowing where we come from and taking that into where we are going. It was so nice to meet you, even <laughs> though we live yeah. in the same street. We meet in Amsterdam. <laughs> I will never forget this. I will come visit you in uh, Wida. <laughs> we'll welcome you. <laughs> yeah, so I think...